Hello everyone and welcome to the Infinite Game Podcast. My name is Lee Mann. I'm an idealist with a passion for inspiring others. I'm a creative, an entrepreneur, and most of all, I'm a work in progress. My goal for this podcast is to share with you stories and ideas from the minds of some of the most thought-provoking and influential people in business, entrepreneurship, and all other areas of life. To learn what it takes to be better than we were yesterday, to live a life full of fulfillment and purpose, and to help and inspire others along the way to learn how to live the infinite game. Now let's get started. All right, welcome to the Infinite Game Podcast. My name is Lee Mann, and today I'm joined by Richie and Wendy. First of all, thanks for joining me today. I know it's uh, taken us a little bit of time. Thanks for inviting us out here. Happy to be Uh, here. I'm Wendy, and we're here to talk about urban roots today. So I'm looking forward to that, because I actually started some... I do a little bit of gardening here that I I kind of was inspired by some of the stuff that you guys were doing. I don't know. Looking forward to digging into that, too. Uh, Cool. um, Yeah, if you guys wanted to maybe just uh, give a little bit of backgrounds as to, to who you are, and a little bit... Yeah, Richie there, you can maybe... Take it, take it on that one first. Sure. Um, so Urban Roots started last January as basically a group of four people meeting in a coffee shop in London, uh, 1018, every Tuesday for a few months and positing the idea of uh, urban farming in London. And that was inspired uh, in a few different ways. One, Graham and Heather, two other members of the team, uh, had recently gone on a trip to uh, Detroit and uh, New York and seen some different versions of urban farming, came back very inspired by that trip, ran into uh, a very friendly man named Jeremy at a urban agriculture conference in London, who has been dreaming of something in this vein for years. And they said, hey, why don't we do this? And so I went to school at Huron with Graham and he reached out to me and said, hey, are you interested in joining in? He framed it as me having business experience and growing up on a farm, I might be of of benefit. I I think that's maybe overselling my farming abilities, but uh, nevertheless, I I joined on. And then fast forward to to today, we have uh, another two board members, so Jacob Damstra, and he's uh, joined in the last few months, and then uh, Wendy Russell, who is right beside me. Yeah, today. So I was asked to join the board, I guess, just before they acquired their land. So uh, the the first winter that the this particular group was working, and um, the the invitation obviously was to join on the board and to really just sort of hear the group out and hear what their plans were and what their values were and what their principles were, and uh, and that's really been my role. I'm a university professor. I'm Richie's university professor from when he was in an undergrad. Um, And I've been helping them sort of consolidate their ideas and values based on, uh, you know, just really talking to them. And it's been very exciting uh, because these are people that have a lot of ideas and a lot of know-how and a lot of insight and, um, and not always certain how accomplished or unusual or unique or entrepreneurial their ideas are. And I think I've had this role as, you know, sort of the oldest board member of being able to reflect back to them really kind of the 
their accomplishments in one hand, but also um, just how unique this project has been and what is highly unusual in terms of the larger, uh, you know, sort of in the larger terms, what we'd refer to as urban agriculture really broadly. Mm -hmm. What this group is doing is really unique. It's kind of a hybrid model. It works with uh, enterprise. It works with social enterprise. And it also has a social mission. And so those combined uh, goals and purposes make this particular project, we'll yeah. call it, mm -hmm. um, really something very exciting. So taking, a, I guess, a broad picture beyond just the, the urban agriculture and everything, what, for both of you, what piqued your interest in, in getting involved in that project to begin with? Or even just that, when, when the idea was suggested, what, what kind of lit up for, for you guys? I guess I could go back to um, some of my, so as I said, I grew up on a farm and um, I'm, I'm very fond of, of that. However, I wasn't maybe the, the classic farm kid in terms of being actively involved in farm work. I was more involved in, uh, you know, sports and music and this kind of thing. And, and then it wasn't uh, until a bit later that, you know, I stumbled upon Wendy's class at uh, my first year of Huron and started to learn about, you know, what's going on in terms of the global food economy and, and what that means on a local level. And that started to pique my interest again. And, and it was very easy for me to connect to my parents and say, hey, have you experienced or recognized any of these things that I'm learning about? And, and very quickly, you know, kind of build that interest, uh, which uh, in, in another way got me involved in uh, a community garden that was operating in the city. Um, and that was working with a, a bunch of refugee communities. Um, and so it was about five years that I spent kind of um, just working with uh, that, that group. Um, and so that, 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 by that point, uh, which is you know, last year when you know, Graham says, hey, we're thinking about Urban Farm, I, I, at that point I've already had it top of mind that you know, there's something here that could happen and I'm not sure, entirely sure what it would be, but it was a pretty natural, yeah, I'm definitely on board for this. Yeah, I was just gonna actually jump in because I think we actually have a little bit of connection mm -hmm. because from the farming aspect, I was a kid from Elderton yeah. that um, you know was involved in in I wasn't your family's farm directly. Well, right. I guess in a way. But yeah, that's yeah, but that's yeah. right. Uh, Barry yeah. and Mary Ellen. Yeah. yeah. So that was my uh, farming. Uh, I grew up going to the farm on Saturdays and milking the cows there. I think they even actually gave me a couple like cows in my name because I guess I put in enough work there as a kid. But mm -hmm. I remember my my uh, my friends would be like playing video games and I'd be out milking the cows. So I had a little bit of the farming. Yeah. So my from his, aunt and uncle's from his, farm. Yeah. From his, his family. That's so incredible. Go back a little bit on that. Yeah. 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 That's so, great. So yeah. So for Wendy, for yourself, like you've, you've been involved in that process or that mindset, at least anyways. Um, maybe not on the, the urban farm part of it, but uh, the social part of it for sure. I think what uh, caught my attention is um, really the, it's kind of a couple of things. One is that, you know, as Richie says, I teach a lot about globalized processes and how something, and agriculture is just one of those examples that I can use easily, especially in early year teaching, um, where you can teach about sort of what happens when um, the 
the really economic processes that are that are shaping how we produce food become global and um, and there are you know clearly great efficiencies and there are all kinds of things that we really celebrate about that but at the same time it's been very clear that it has had some really profound social impacts and those impacts are felt everywhere from uh, you know the kitchen of a fairly poor family living in the city to the kinds of experiences that children would have living on a farm like that you guys are describing and it it really there are really profound social impacts at some of these changes and so on the one hand it seems like it's you know I'm I'm attracted to this because it seems to be a story of sort of loss but but the other side of of all of of everything that changes at a global scale is always there is a response, right? And that is that that there is suddenly a new kind of room made to do things differently. And um, urban agriculture is one of those places where you can see people taking up this new room that's been left, this new space that's been abandoned, really, by a kind of market-driven agriculture. And it's people, right? And it's just people who are sitting around in a coffee shop. And so for me, one reason that I'm really interested in urban agriculture is because it's very clearly a kind of micro-scale human reaction to change. Mm -hmm. And, And it's also... Liberatory. It's people saying, "Eh, I'm not going to play by those rules." And in <laughs> yes. fact, I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to acknowledge that those rules exist. I'm just going to go do something, which is really an entrepreneurial thing, mm-hmm. right? And that leads me to the second reason that I'm. I was really interested in what URL is doing, what the Urban Roots London is doing, is that entrepreneurial aspect. Because one of the things that's quite fascinating about London, Ontario, is in the past 15 years, there's been what I'm always telling people to call, and this is just really nerdy of me to have a word that I want everybody to use, but the word I want everybody to use is, is re-diversification. And there's a re-diversification of the food economy in London going on, and it has been it has happened rapidly, and it is hilariously ungovernable in a way. It is not following the rules, and, and it is endlessly networked. You don't, you know, a month doesn't go by that the URL people aren't able to network with some other part of this re-diversified food economy mm-hmm. in London, right? And and that's been going on for a long time. And it's like, it's there's kind of a critical mass now. Now, is the city going to be, is the entire food economy of London, Ontario going to change overnight? I don't know. But um, we may as well be part of it now. And and so I think that URL is one of these places where they're linking up with things that are already underway. It doesn't have to be a whole project that changes everything. It's all going to be a kind of, and I think this word is overused, there's going to be synergies. As a lot of these little tiny, don't laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm too old to use the word synergy. Um, but there are all of these, you know, as these different nodes emerge, they begin to network one another and things are changing, right? So when you speak of change, what do you think? Because I, I totally see it too. I mean, we do maple syrup here. We do beekeeping. Um, and, and almost people are reaching out to me because I'm doing it on such a small scale. It's not even the fact, like if I produced it on mass, it would almost be rejected. You know, like that's, that's what's essentially the, the kind of the atmosphere that I'm getting anyways. What do you think that it has been the catalyst for starting 
um, this type of mentality or this thought process now all of a sudden? Because obviously, I mean, we had the ability to do this. In fact, if you go back, you know, in time, this is the way everybody did it. It was, you know, that not, not urban necessarily, but it was everyone small scale farming, right? And um, so it's not like we never, I've never done this, but why is it now that I think the thought process coming up? That is a good question. I, I think you posit some of the answer in, in that, you know, people remember a time, some people, I'm, I'm too young, but people remember that was the way that they did it with their parents and, and grandparents. And so the, it, that would, to me, seem like a natural, of course you'd be attracted to that if it was a positive experience. In terms of the younger generation, I think that's a harder question to answer directly with just, you know, this has happened and therefore suddenly, you know, my generation is keenly interested in small scale production. Um, but if I was to you know, suggest, I guess for my own sake, it was more, um, or my own journey, if you will, to that, um, insight it was, was initially a distaste with the other alternative, which right. is the, the mainstream model. And as soon as you, you know, peel back the first layer of wrapping, you realize that, you know, there's nothing in this granola bar. It's just a bunch of garbage. And, and what, where did this come from and how did it get to this? And the more of those questions you ask, you realize, why would I want to be a part of this? Yeah. And so that was, that was true for me. And I'm not sure that that's everybody's experience. Some might just see this is a very good quality and I want fresh vegetables and this food tastes good. So I, I like it, but, um, I'm not sure that I don't know all the answers or all the reasons for it. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I don't know if we're ever going to know the answer. And um, and I, I say this not as the answer, um, but I, I think there are a couple of things at least. One is what Richie has described here is people refusing to be um, mistreated as consumers. Mm-hmm. And and they, they also don't want their neighbors to be mistreated as consumers mm-hmm. either. They don't want other people around them, whether those people have... Um, um, a lot of money to buy food or not a lot of money to be f- buy food. They don't want their neighbors and their community to be mistreated as as consumers, really just being located as consumers of whatever it is mass scale agriculture wants to produce. I think people are to use a word my students use all the time and I tell them to stop using it. People don't want to be alienated. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't want my students to use the word because it sounds depressing. But I think another reason from a kind of a purely economic point of view is wage stagnation since the 1970s. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a, that's had a very real impact on Western Europe and, and, you know, those parts of North America that have been heavily invested in a kind of capitalist model where everybody had a job and was able to then just be a consumer mm-hmm. on stuff, right? Um, and wage stagnation since the 1970s very real and it has utterly transformed what it's like to be a worker. And so I think that part and parcel of some of these changes is uh, that people see the necessity of entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. right? And and a lot of what you see is this new diversification, re-diversification of the food economy looks like 
entrepreneurship. And it's people making a living, but not trying to become Elon Musk, right? Mm-hmm. Like a cooperative brewery, like London Brewing Co-op mm-hmm. in London, also started by Huron students, isn't going to become, <laughs> there's like it's something going on at Huron. Uh, <laughs> They're actually upcoming guests of mine on the podcast. Oh, so, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. You got to come to Huron. Yeah. Um, the uh, sense of people to Huron too. But um, like something like London Brewing Co-op, it, the next step for that isn't, uh, you know, to become low and brow right? Or mm-hmm. Labatt's, I guess, yeah. is a more obvious example. The next step for London Co-op, uh, Brewing Co-op, is, you know, a different kind of offshoot business. Mm-hmm. And and so there's really a changing uh, kind of re-socialization of the way that business is being run. Mm-hmm. It's more deliberately embedded in the economy. And that's part of the shape of this new re-diversified economy that's going on in London. I'm going to stop saying that word, re-diversified. Uh, so, yeah. but, I think you can imagine by now many times... <laughs> We have meetings where Wendy says what we're trying to say, and we all say yes. That's what it. That's what we're trying to get to. Yeah. So the interesting thing is because obviously we were restricted by technology when we were doing this before on a small scale. Like basically, see, basically yeah. when we were doing farming the way that we did 100 or 150 years ago, or you go back, it was because we only had the technology to be able to do it at that scale. We didn't really have the effort or the manpower or the machinery to be able to create a, on scale. On scale. What's interesting now is. We have the ability to do it big, but we're choosing to do it small. And so we actually are kind of giving up in a way, not necessarily that technology will be absent, but on, on mass, um, it is interesting in that fact. And I think too, there's one element that I talked to somebody else on, on a podcast here and they mentioned that they're doing small scale, like backyard, um, you know, urban, urban gardening more so than farming. But he said that his kids are taught a lot of how to fail well, through garden, through gardening and farming, and how to be patient. A lot of a lot of attributes in life that are very important. That would, as being solely a consumer, you wouldn't be able to experience. And he said that his kids are being taught through through being able to say the patience of waiting for something to grow, or even still, if you were to pick that too early, what happens? Right? It does. It doesn't work. Right? And so, it's interesting that the farming aspect can apply to so much more in life in general as to what we have to be able to do to be able to let life kind of play out right in front of us. But I will also say uh, just joy and happiness, For right? Sure. Like, yeah. you know, they don't have to, it doesn't have to be a skill set. Yeah. It can also just be um, just delight mm-hmm. and uh, feeling accomplishment. And, and those are just beautiful things, For right? For sure. Being able to create something, yeah. you know, out of nothing almost or seemingly out of nothing. You this, ask that this farm is so beautiful out there. Mm-hmm. Like, it, yeah. it's, it really is just mind bogglingly beautiful to see the farm. And when so. people ask, I mean, one of the most joyous things is harvesting that is something that you just it's hard not to feel joy when you're pulling things out of the ground that realistically you know you had very little to do with but you know you waited and there it is and it's yeah, somewhat, and somewhat magical in, in many ways and I guess it was earlier this week just as you know it was going to be clear that it was going to be like around two degrees and mm. at this time of night like in just at dusk and uh, Jeremy's on slack with the rest of us saying is it okay if I go out to the farm tonight and he was going to do something something straight line silage something I don't know what he was doing I'm not the farm person and um, and it was just really lovely because um, I think we were all sitting there thinking yeah he's right it'd be nice out there tonight 
night, yeah. right? So there really is just kind of, um, there's a really affective side to this, like an you know, emotional side to it, which is feeling, right? Yeah. So It's one of the reasons actually I started this maple syrup because mm-hmm. I've, I've obviously, as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of ups and downs in entrepreneurship. I've mentioned on the podcast before, I've struggled with on and off with depression different times. And so the maple syrup uh, was, was right in a time of year when you kind of need that looking forward to something. And so you start that up, I, we start that up like mid-January to get ready for that. And uh, it is in a good place where you can go out and, and actually, people mention that to me all the time too, when they go out to their gardens or they go out to different things, the, the feelings that they get from just sitting out there. Don't, don't even, it's almost a form of meditation almost in a way, right? Being able to unwind and do that. Do you feel that, um, do, you th- do you feel that that's a generational thing or do you think that, do you think that it's something that an older generation may be lost or do you feel that it is going to be a, have to be taken over by a younger generation to, to kind of get that going? I, like, I don't know, because I see as millennials or younger generation, they do care where their stuff comes from now. And they, they don't want to just put their money behind something because it's a nice product. They want to make sure that it's actually doing something that's, that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that that, and I know this is back to a little bit of trying to discover why this is all of a sudden becoming a, a bigger thing. Um, but do you feel that it's something that, could be experienced by by everybody or do you think that some of that generation is 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 still stuck in the, the, the like an older generation is maybe it's harder to bring them back to that because they've been used to it i don't know like as far as as far this as is, health this effects is a, and, yeah no this is this is t- tough to say i think that um you know, it's a, it's a really good set of questions. One of the things that I, I mean, I speak as a person that grew up in the seventies. And so, you know, I'm the, the age of the parents of most of the other people that are running this farm. And, um, and so I wasn't really alienated from a food system the way they were. I was part of a, I kind of got to grow up at the tail end of a food system where a chicken tasted like a chicken. And, um, and now I can get a chicken that tastes like a chicken again, because there free-range chickens being raised at all kinds of farms around London, Ontario, right? Um, I can get a ham that tastes like exactly like the ham that we ate when I was a little kid um, in a farming community where my family, part of my family's from. And so um, I wasn't alienated from it in the same way that this generation really grew up alienated from it. And so for me, um, I'm just sort of blown away by how this generation, this young generation, this millennials, I guess, they they created this themselves, right? They took issue, they got freaked out, they um, decided there was just a way to fix this, and 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 it's re- it's it's worked out that maybe uh, they've been um, kind of let go a little bit by capitalism. Capitalism's like, I don't know, you want a full time job? Look somewhere else, right? Yeah. That is, you know, there really is just not a great place. Um, for them to land in the economy and they've so so they've kind of maybe lost faith Mm -hmm. that big giant capitalism and great technology is just the right thing Mm -hmm. and and so now they're just going to work outside of it and and i think they're also discovering the kind of thing that you're mentioning which is um just a richer sense of satisfaction motivations are not solely to become you know the elon musk of Mm -hmm. the honey business and or the um maple syrup business Mm -hmm. because that would be ridiculous (laughs) Um, because he's hugely wasteful Um, uh, um but uh like, don't listen to this and come after me or anything. But um, <laughs> the, side note. Sorry, just side note. Um, but 
but you know, these are also people who are setting their sights differently in terms of what their goals are. And, and so I don't know. I mean, I have huge faith in this generation, um, but I don't know why. So anyway, you should speak to this. You're that generation of millennials. Well, I, I think the, the initial question was more the, the older generation. Oh, right. And Sorry. I was yeah, hoping you would answer that question for me because oh, yeah. I don't know the answer at all. Um, cause, but I, I think that, well, even my own parents, I mean, they certainly have um, changed lots of you know, perspectives and, and opinions over the last I mean, decade. Um, and if I was to look back to, you know, yeah, 10 years ago and, and imagine what's happening now, I think I would have a hard time believing that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that, um, you know, I'd, I wouldn't say that, you know, the, an older generation is kind of stuck. I think it really is depends on the, what they're exposed to in, in, in what context. I mean, for my parents, it's very upfront and personal when we talk yeah. about food production because yeah. that's their life, but that might not be true for, you know, someone else who's living in the city and has their entire life. So talking about food production, I think this is one of the hardest questions when I, when I talk about or when I think about personally urban farming or small-scale farming, and it's can we actually have a world that exists like that? I, I mean, there's the few of us who are privileged to be able to have that opportunity. I have 40 acres here. I could start that up tomorrow if I, if I wanted to, and I believe in doing that. Not everyone has that ability. They can, you know, they can do what they can. They can put something out on their balconies or different things like that. But can we actually, you know, produce a li- live in a world where we can actually be fully sustainable in that environment? I believe there's probably ways we can do it, but there's got to be a transition time. And I think that I think that um, this is a difficult question. Sometimes I hear the raw raw. Let's get rid of big farming, and I go, yes, but is that practical right if, if we were to let's yeah. a lot of times the way that I answer questions is by asking the most crazy outrageous part of it and is saying let's have everyone be urban farmers or let's have everyone be small-scale farmers can we feed the world doing that and that's a the, difficult question and I can tell you this and I, I'll just tell you this based on a couple of things first off um, the question is, can we get off the crack mm-hmm. of um, <laughs> monocropping, heavily capital dependent, mm-hmm. capital intensive, and um, input intensive agriculture? Like that's the big question. Yeah. And um, and the truth is, we don't know how to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And so I don't mean to be too combative with yeah. that. But the reason we don't know how to answer that question is because we haven't really looked around to really evaluate how productive small-scale agriculture can be. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out that there's a great set of resources that have become available to us since the late 1990s and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And the great set of resources is really this sort of huge body of evidence that's coming out of the former Soviet Union about the value of what is called peasant production, right? And I read a paper the other day that um, in the late, in the early 2000s, inside Russia, peasants were producing 44% of the food inside Russia. Mm-hmm. Now, Russia has all kinds of nonsensical trade policies that keep exports from imports from coming in and so on, like things that are, are really kind of unthinkable. But, but there's this reality that we haven't really 
looked at the productivity of smallholder farming. We're constantly looking at the productivity of the crack side. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I'm not anti, you know, big scale farming. It just has impacts. And I don't know if we need to live with the impacts. Mm -hmm. Plus, people don't want to live with the impacts. So I don't think we know how to answer that question yet. And I think that that the answer to that question is going to come from really combing through and doing this research with these small scale, smallholder producers that really are all over the world and that are going to be in places like here again soon. Right. Yeah. I think some of the, uh, some of the question is reframing the idea of productivity as not in terms of, you know, calorie output exclusively, uh, which is commonly used in, in many of these kinds of discussions um, and thinking about, you know, okay, humans eating food, what do we require to, yeah. you know, be, live healthy and, and uh, as, a, as, an, as a person? And um, that kind of shifts it a little bit because, um, of course, we can't live off of corn and, yeah. you know, be used for a lot of things, but you know, it's not a diet if it's just corn. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that, like you said, like there's, you know, we just say, you know, large-scale farming is, you know, inherently unsustainable is is not true because there's of course a whole range of of how you do that production and um you know what goes into that from just the basic thing like crop rotation is clearly a better thing to do than not rotating yeah. your crops um and and then i think you're going to keep you're going to see a lot more I, I guess i'm thinking of my family again and, and my cousin who who has a, you know a beef farm and and now has a, a very thriving uh kind of enterprise that sells all kinds of different meats and, and products from that farm that, you know, he, they didn't have that, you know, 10 years ago either. So these kinds of things are, are already happening in, in those bigger contexts as well. So, yeah, I, I, I think the other thing that I, and this applies to entrepreneurship, life in general, to some extent is scalability inherently hard to keep the reason why we start something because even for a business, for me, I start businesses and I have a purpose and a mission of why I start that business. And as soon as inherently as the company becomes bigger, as you look, take any company and the bigger it gets, it seems to lose its identity and it seems to lose its mission. And I wonder if they're in this world, is there ever a way to be scalable? Like, so, so take urban farming, for example, some through technology, through anything, as humans and human nature, do we inherently lose our, uh, I don't know what the exact right word, but do, as, so say we had like 20,000 acres of, of urban farming style and some one person was running that, do we inherently start going back to an idea of, you know, it's, it's not about what we're doing it for in the first place? I think you said it and, and it if one person is running it, that's, right. that's, that's, a, that's a problem yeah. and something that, um, that does happen a lot as, as something is successful in scales, it, it becomes increasingly, you know, authoritarian if you want. Sure. Um, yeah. but I think the only way to avoid that is to have the localized control over these kinds of projects. And that's something certainly that we as urban roots have been trying to be very conscious of that, you know, we're not saying urban roots is going to be Southwestern Ontario's urban farm conglomerate, yeah. but that there would be pockets of urban farms that can take the model that we started and make that work in Byron or 
Soho or whatever community that you know happens to want to take it on. It's not scalable. It's movable. Mm. That's a good. And it's that. replicatable, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. um, and that's that's a very different way of thinking about an an economic model. Is yeah. to think about it as something that it's not just franchises either, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's really a kind of viral spread, yeah. and um, you know, it's a hive spreading out, maybe. And that's yeah. maybe the co-op model that you know, yeah. Wendy referred to earlier right. too. Is that they're you know, they're also keenly aware of, of that kind of intentionality and, and, and it might spin off into something different like the root cellar and on the move organics and now and a brewery. So these things are somewhat and related, that, of course, but that's been super smart diversification on their part too, yeah. right? Because, um, you know, it's, they've been able to secure one enterprise and then see where its particular weaknesses are and create another enterprise that it can feed into. Both are now secure. It's just an, you know, they're going to take over the world, but it's going to be all these little <laughs> tiny businesses at a Wait time, a right? No, yeah. yeah, but it'll all be little tiny businesses, right? Yeah, so. it's, it's really weird because that's how I always try to frame a problem is you, you, take, you take it to the most extreme. So everyone starts thinking the exact same way, right? Not, not that they don't think for themselves, but let's just say urban farming takes, you know, takes over the world and, every, and everyone starts doing that or we're all, almost all fed through urban farming or small-scale farming. What is there problems to that? Like, I mean, we don't really see that because we think of that as being a far off distant, you know, almost impossible mission. But what, what are some of the things that, um, or, or how do we build success around the fact that people need to be connected? Like, is it okay if I monoculture something on a small scale? Like, is it okay that, you know, I'm, I'm the one that's growing, I don't know. I'm the one that's growing watermelons and somebody else, you know, my neighbor, maybe collectively we all grow different things in a monoculture way because then, then we're, we're more efficient at what we do, I guess, rather than learning everything. Is that like, is that, is that possible? Like, I'm just saying a way for communities to feed each other that doesn't, not everyone's growing 10 of the same thing. Right. Oh yeah, that's absolutely right. And this is why you need diversity, right? And this is why all economies and all economic systems can't just be isolated to one plot of land. Mm -hmm. They have to be integrated into larger systems where you're going to be able to trade your watermelons. And and maybe you're just super good at growing watermelons. Mm -hmm. Then grow those watermelons and everybody else, you'll trade them for whatever else, right? I mean, you know, speaking of generational thing, I grew up in a family where my grandmother... Uh, traded vegetables and fruit that she canned for meat because she couldn't Mm -hmm. handle raising, you know, meat. And so she would, you know, grow all that stuff, can it, and then trade it to other people. And, um, and that worked, right? And that was just the way people got by. My mom tells me these stories and I stare at her like, you are from another planet. And she's just like, it's just the way it was, Wendy. So, (laughs) you know, I mean, we absolutely have the capacity to do all these things. And it would also break down some of these other problems of alienation and isolation that, that we also are concerned about. But, um, and I will also say that, that I just want to underscore the diversification that's going on, um, even in like the Richie's family that I've had the pleasure to sort of hear a little bit about and be a little part of. Richie's family is going, I'm a customer rather, um, I mean, Richie's own mom and dad are now doing free run eggs. Mm-hmm. And um, that 
that is really amazing. But it's also a, a considered business decision that people with decades of experience in farming and making a living from agriculture, they recognize the risks and the benefits and the potentials and how to make it all work as a business. So there's a lot of business knowledge that you know, this kind of insight, this know-how that is utterly necessary, but is completely available. And it's, it's available from people who have tried to function in the old system too, right? That is this system that we're trying to, that we're kind of watching fall apart now. Yeah. No. So I, I mean, I've seen examples. I, I only have, I have interest in urban farming and small scale farming. So I've delved into YouTube and different things that I, I don't, from, from like an outside perspective, I've looked at some people who, you know, have half acre plots who, you know, not very much land is in the, in the scheme of things and are making very, very good money doing this. And I don't know if that's, you, everyone looks at that to, as maybe an aspiration to say, Hey, I can, I can also, I can live this way, but I can also make a living from it. Um, it, it for sure is possible to do that on a small scale. Um, and so I think from a, even from a, we don't have to just give this up as a sense of for our health benefits only, but as, but as a way to actually make it, make a, make an income. I think, I think it's probably maybe harder than some people think. It's not an easy, you know, you're not sitting in front of a computer all day long. You have to go out and do work, but it's certainly, I think part of it is, well, and mind you, you've, you've talked a lot of business actually. I'm very proud of you. Um, (laughs) the, uh, the entrepreneurial idea of you know having some kind of autonomy or some kind of you know um, role in decision making for what you're doing and if in the case of food production um, you know there's a lot of, of farmers who kind of get turned off by buying seed and chemical and you know any other you know uh, herbicides pet, whatever you need to input into that to grow it and then harvest it and end up selling it back to a subsidiary of the same company with prices set at, you know, the market in Chicago, which you know, at what point is there, you know, a lot of say over what's going on at, on the farm and you start to answer not very often. And so, um, that's where you start to see these other, you know, things popping up where if you're raising hens and collecting the eggs and selling them to the, your neighbors and your university professors, uh, you have a lot of control over what, what happens from start to finish. And, you know, the income tends to be, you know, not easier, but more direct. And you can draw the line from A to B as opposed to, you know, this is my tiny slice of the pie if things go well and I have no control over whether that happens or not. Mm-hmm. Because the price for free run eggs isn't change. set in uh, Chicago. Right, yeah, right. right, yeah. Yeah, and, and for me as a consumer, I have the opportunity to, and, you know, I have the opportunity to make a decision about I don't want to keep chickens, mm-hmm. right? Like chickens don't stand a chance around me. I'm just <laughs> not going to be able to figure this out. And I also don't even want to grow my own food. I'm going to grow flowers. That's my thing. And, <laughs> and little trees and shrubs and all that stuff, right? But um, I want to be able to use my money to support livelihoods that mean something to those people. And not to say that, you know, people that are producing a big scale egg are, are not, you know, having meaningful lives. But but I, I, I have this luxury of being able to make these more direct connections. I'll also point out that some of this kind of specialty food, like these free run eggs, the price points are, are coming down for these things, right? Like, um, Rich's parents charge shockingly little for these, um, free run eggs. And, um, you know, 
it's it's increasingly accessible to people who we think of as not able to buy their way into the system to poor people. And again, this is one of the priorities of, of Urban Roots London is how are we going to break that down? Mm-hmm. And how are we going to make sure that this is decent food that, that meets all these other tests of value and, and health that also is going to be available to people that otherwise couldn't afford it? Yeah. And without also those people being turned into objects of pity or charity, right? But they're just consumers who deserve a good shake, yeah. just like everybody else, right? So, so yeah. So, what do you think are some of those challenges? If we dive into that a little bit, where um, you know affordability, definitely that's been a. I think that's been a big barrier um, to a lot of people, or that's people who may not even fully be aware of what's going on or or know prices. That's going to be a lot of people's argument um, that you know that's that's kind of a privileged um, luxury that we have to be able to go have choice to be able to choose between regular eggs or free range eggs or, or free run eggs. Um, you know, what, what it's kind of, do you see some of that movement happening? Um, or, or is that still a valid argument? By moving the price? Mo- moving or, or some kind of way to be able to encounter that, pro- uh, challenge that problem of, of affordability for sure. I, I think it can be, uh, a, a real challenge for sure. Um, there's a couple different things that come to mind. One is that, of course, uh, and I think more people are realizing that we have a a certain way of thinking about spending money on food in in this culture and in generally speaking, North America. But you know, we spend less and less and less of our income on food, um, and therefore define expensive in a very different way than we maybe would have in in different times. Mm-hmm. And I mean, really, when you're paying five dollars for a you know, packet of processed pizza pockets. I don't know. I, what yeah. are we actually buying? And right. those are different questions as well. But, yeah. um, but even that aside, I mean, it's it's still not uncommon to to look in the grocery store or at a market and say, you know, here is a, a locally produced organic bag of spinach, and it's it's six dollars, and then here's something that's that's not that, and it's four dollars or three and a half, and so there's still a disparity there. Um, and so in the case where, you know, you are you know, not, you do not have the luxury to spend any extra dollars on, 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 on food, then how, how do you bridge that gap? And I, and I think part of that is one of the reasons why, you know, Urban Roots decided that, you know, for the time being, it certainly makes sense to find ways to get that access um, at a more affordable rate through I mean, essentially a subsidized model. Mm-hmm. And I think Wendy at the beginning alluded to kind of these three areas that we're working in and that is selling at a at a normal wholesale price to restaurants that are in the city that, mm-hmm. that want to do that and purchase from us, selling at a slightly more affordable rate to say a social enterprise like uh, Youth Opportunities Unlimited mm-hmm. or Edgar and Joe's, um, enterprises that have funding but we, we support what they're doing and we're happy to kind of partner in that way. And then those funds ideally cover operating costs to allow an, in our model a third, so it's a third, a third, a third, um, to be freed up to be fully accessible to anybody. And, and not, and then again, I think Wendy said this too, but it's not a, um, you know, the leftovers or the you know, lesser product. It's, this is the exact same thing yeah. in every bucket that I'm explaining. And, and this third is going to go to the Crouch Community Resource Center and they're going to send out these food boxes that are $10 a month 
full of good, healthy produce produced on off Hamilton Road. Um, so that's something that can help with that. I mean, certainly this, the problem is bigger than just but it's that gonna solution. Take a, but I think the, the, you know, again, from my point of view, um, there, there was such a long period of time when there was no solution to this problem. Sure. Mm-hmm. And um, that there are all kinds of new examples popping up here and there all over the place. Like Oakland, California has been huge for inventing and reinventing the food system at a kind of a local scale. Um, but the you know the idea that that there it, a, a huge part of the problem isn't really price it's really bringing together a local producer that has lower overhead mm-hmm. um, because they're closer and a consumer who is going to be able to buy that at the same price of something that is super expensive because is not as expensive rather because it's come from far away but it was also produced in these using these big monocropping methods and so um, if a person like we should be able to produce cheaper food locally is right. what I'm trying to say mm-hmm. and, well yeah if you're producing yeah. the same product and have Having to that's move right. it somewhere, that's you, right. You should be able to produce yeah. it. Yeah, and what we need is we need to create these points of, of contact between the consumer and the producer more. Mm-hmm. And and this is why you know the notion of farmers markets, even though you know who knows what a farmers market is sometimes, um, the notion of a farmers market is really a huge. Uh, part of the answer to this where people can become consumers consuming more directly from producers so and this is like urban roots london is trying to do farm gate sales which seems Mm kind of hilarious but it's a model and it's the kind of thing that it's the diversity we need right so part let's dig into something that i think is probably one of the biggest issues beyond the affordability beyond anything else it's probably the education i would say and you guys alluded to this a little bit um earlier but where we learn in school you know how a plant grows you know but we don't really learn the source of our food we don't learn about the importance of what we should be eating Um, and so until we can change a lot of people's minds and thinking of of healthy eating uh, I don't know if like you say people will value that they should be spending a little bit more money for something that's a little bit healthier the other thing is is that health impact isn't seen immediately, right? I'm not breaking my arm. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not in a car accident. I'm not, so I can put that off because, you know, it's not affecting me today. You know, 30 years down the road, I might, it might be different, but by then it's already come and gone. So I think education definitely is huge. And, and maybe from you guys as a, from an institutional standpoint, but even I believe it should be done much younger, you know, as well, the importance of understanding the benefits of, of eating in that way will cause much more people to feel value in, in even paying maybe a little bit more, right? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'll shout out to my parents again for, I, I had the privilege of being educated in that way for as far as I can remember, essentially. But, um, and, I, and I, I don't know about how to you know, incorporate that, or what the best way to incorporate that is into, say, the institutional mm-hmm. primary school or high school education system is, I think it would be valuable. Um, also, budgeting money and personal finances would be a good thing, side yes. note. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, <clears throat> I had a thought and I've now lost it, so... Wendy, do you want to talk? Well, I mean, I'm going to sound like I'm a contrarian here. And um, because I think that, uh, you know, for me, what I'm most concerned about is empowerment 
inside the food system. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is I would really like to make sure that people um, are given the time to cook and that people can, um, you know, schedule their lives in ways that, um, you know, slicing up a tomato, slicing up some peppers and onions and throwing it into a pan and calling it stir fry. You know, that, I, I would like people to have the empowerment to know that they're going to be able to accomplish this and that it's going to taste delicious and that the kids are going to love it. And, but they can, they're going to have to have the time to do that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I want people to feel empowered to say, look, you know, a hot pocket is not a good thing. Right. And, and to, and for kids to say, I demand something different. Like I, so for me, it's not necessarily that there is this kind of remedial education that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. I think we need to give people a a chance to to acknowledge that they can have power over this system right mm -hmm. and that they can have some power in it and that they can act in ways that are going to be beneficial to their whole family mm -hmm. you know this work of social reproduction that takes place in the household we you know we can't let a big food system like you know pepsi cola or whoever come in and and tell people how to live in their lives mm -hmm. but that's what we've let happen yeah um, I, I, I think what I was thinking earlier is that we do talk a lot about um, kind of educational value in what we're doing at, at Urban Roots and uh, a couple of things we're excited about. Um, we've had some you know, doors maybe opening with the Thames Valley School Board and bringing schools mm -hmm. out to the farm just to see what's happening and yeah. where food grows. Um, but also uh, we are, are working with uh, Yotuni, which is an organization that works with a few, um, three, three actually, uh, First Nations communities in the area. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and basically they're going to be bringing youth um, probably on a weekly basis, actually, uh, this year to the farm. Um, and and they're, they reached out to us and we're very excited about this uh, opportunity to engage uh, in food production. And, and it was uh, and, and not just for the sake of, you know, oh, food is good to know how to grow. It's, it's also deeply rooted in, you know, ancestral traditions and, and, and deep meanings that, that they're, they're trying to find ways to connect to that have been somewhat lost in, in many circumstances. Um, and so, I mean, something like that to me is, is incredibly exciting um yeah because we're gonna and, learn a lot from that too and right because yeah, there's I, I, so much for us to learn yeah. from yeah. this exercise yeah for this partnership yeah, yeah. no that's really interesting because i think uh, so a couple examples that i can think of my niece my nieces come out to our place and we have just the small garden out here and the time thing that you mentioned there wendy is is so true because you could have the education but mm -hmm. if they didn't have the hour that they that you know that we gave them to, to spend out there to just explore and just to, you know, pick something and try it. They, they could have all that education they want and they, they'll never be intrigued or inspired or interested or any of those things without being able to have that time to experience it. And I think they're totally different. They, they now know, you know, they pick beans off the, the plants and eat them right, right then, you know, they're not like, Oh, I got to go wash this off or whatever it is. They just eat it right then. And they, you know, would have never had that opportunity had, First of all, I guess we not had this opportunity to be able to create that, but beyond that, to be able to come out and spend an afternoon in that environment. So I think it's totally, it's totally true. And your point is totally right where, you know, we have to have the education, sure, but you have to be able to have the, the time to be able to exploit that. It's, it's very true. Um, so, so I guess what are the easiest steps for people to be able to, 
because I think one of the one of the most valuable things that we can do as as humans is to inspire other people to do their own things as well. And I think that that's one of the objectives I think with with what you guys do, and and even in my life, I think if I can create an environment where someone can see what I've done or see what other people are doing, and they go, I can do that too, or they they have to think they have to be able to think that they can do that too. If you're if you came up to what you guys do at your farm there. And they go, oh man, this is like, you need millions of dollars to start this and you, or you need tons and tons of time or whatever it is, they'll give up right away, right? And you ha- we have to be able to bridge that gap and bridge that barrier to where it becomes something that when they visit or when they're exposed to it, that they see that they can go, hey, I can go do this on my patio or I can go do this in a situation, whatever situation I have. And until we can do that, until we make it accessible, and you guys were talking about this, but until we make it accessible like that, I don't think... Um, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very easy to accomplish the mission regardless of how, how much we educate somebody on it. If, if you're not inspired by it, if you don't think that you can do it yourself, good luck. So how do you think that the easiest ways to, for people to be able to, you know, become inspired through that process is? Through urban farming specifically or just... Just even in, to, gen, in general, but being educated, educated in that, um, you know, to encourage more people to be involved in that. I mean, we talked through edu- education a little bit, but be, beyond that as well. What do you think is the, some of the easiest or most effective ways to be able to encourage others to... I, this might sound counterintuitive, but um, <laughs> I guess speaking from our team, none of us really had any idea what we were doing. We still, by and large, don't entirely know. I think Jeremy knows doing. a lot about... Jeremy, Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy's our expert farmer at this point. Plus he's out in the field as we speak, probably. Probably. Yeah. Um, and... But when we started, we, it was really, you know, we were inspired, as I said at the beginning, in various different ways and, and how we all kind of collided together is, is the initial story. But uh, at, at that point, you know, the level of knowledge, if, if you were interviewing us to hire us for an urban farm project, we would not get the job. I would just say that, I think. <laughs> um, uh, but so what really came down to is that we just did something mm-hmm. and I don't know if this came up earlier. I feel like it did, but action and, and actually, you know, learning as you go is, is certainly uh, important, but it was something as simple as, I mean, I'll be honest, our plot last year was, you know, <laughs> 70 feet by 90 feet. And, uh, and a good chunk of that was not very productive based on us learning the hard way, how things grow. But uh, that was enough for people to see, oh, this is a, a tangible thing happening, not a theoretical conversation about urban farming and its benefits. It was, there's some food growing over there. There's some people out there. What's going on? And and then, you know, starting the city now has a, a urban farm policy that's that's gone through. And that's not because of us, of course, but, you know, more and more things just start to, to happen because of tangible actions. And, mm-hmm. and some of them aren't always productive and that's okay. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that to me, I guess, knowing if I had been told that too, I'd feel a little better about starting an urban farm with very little farming knowledge. Yeah. Certainly of growing vegetables. Mike yeah. going to say something positive. No, no, I think there's so many different, I think, I think there are ways to act at, at literally every scale and in, from every circumstance. And, um, if you are on a parent council and you have kids in an elementary school in the city, Go to parent-teacher meetings and encourage 
growing mm. beans out front or something. Um, and, um, you know, and, and you can just do this as a partnership with teachers who are probably really eager to do something like this. Um, if you are a rich person like me, you can consider what kinds of donations and charitable donations you can make to really interesting organizations. Um, I think, for example, just throw it out there for the hundreds of people that listen to your podcast. We need, if we're going to advance, um, and I don't mean we as an Urban Roots London, because we already got this done, but um, in, in, in cities in Southern Ontario, we need a charity who's going to do something like fund um, soil testing for new urban uh, agricultural initiatives and because um, it's kind of expensive and uh, but it needs to be done and um, you know so we have all kinds of opportunities from really the small scale from our neighborhood all the way up to where we can get involved with more sort of regional, re- regional things um, and I would also say just you know cherish what you see around you that that is valuable. I live in a neighborhood now where a lot of people are, you know, transforming their front yards, uh, you know, away from lawns into, you know, bee forage or <laughs> food they're going to eat. And, um, and, and I cherish that. I look at that and, and I defend it at every chance I get. And, um, you know, I think that, that the easiest way to do this is to just sort of change how you live in the the place that you're living in and look at it differently and and that's going to help you understand that food is being produced in this place that you're living in and you're going to understand how and how it's not how it's going well and how it's not going well mm-hmm. so going going back to practical a little bit instead of the, yeah, the theoretical yeah. there um what are some of the failures or challenges or different things that so just so that people might be able to relate if they're going through this that you guys have faced uh, you know along the way Sure. Uh, I think one of the first things for us was, although we knew that there was, I'll say, theoretical support for the idea of urban farming and many people that would certainly confirm that to us, um, we didn't anticipate, you know, say, having a hard time finding a piece of property to do that on because you know if you drive around London you very quickly say look space look more space there's so much space uh, and yet it, you know, it was seven months before we actually had a, a spot where we could say we're gonna start here so that was you know it felt like a failure certainly for that period of time it was just kind of wall after wall after wall and then very quickly after that we also discovered that and I'm sure many organizations have discovered this that we are ineligible for grant funding because we are in our first year of operation. And so that meant that, um, and, and because a lot of grants require you to have a full year under your belt before you can then apply to funding. And Isn't that kind of counterintuitive? Uh, I mean, in, or, in some or respects, not very, or not very, yeah. I don't know, I'm, I'm not that familiar with the grant programs, but that just sounds a little bit like, do we want people to start something or do we want to make sure that they're doing something great before we actually give them money? I mean, sorry. <laughs> it certainly yeah. felt like that. And I, I know that, I mean, I'm sure you can imagine that there's some yeah. you know, reasoning behind it for, um, you know, money, not just going into kind of ad hoc things that pop out of nowhere sure. with no longevity and, yeah. and no real intentional social purpose, for example. But, hmm. um, That's be tough. It, it certainly for a group that was, you know, we're not lying. We swear we're going to do this. It, it hurts to realize that it doesn't matter. We, yeah. we still have to just wait. Um, and then, you know, we're currently going through the application process again and, and we still may not get mm-hmm. any of that funding. That's a very real possibility. Um, so sometimes, yeah, that certainly feels like failure when you get the rejection that says, no, you're, you're not the one that's chosen this time. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the two that come to mind, the, the 
quickest. I don't, I'm sure there's been others. Um, I, I would say that some of the more practical stuff that's been really hilarious is, <laughs> um, for example, um, you know, the, is is that they've been able to plant food on mass. Um, that is, there are some crops, and I don't mean on masses in you know, 150 acres. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's a lot of garlic in the ground this year, That's and great. and that took what seems like you know simple planning, but it it really was a big deal to figure out what kind of garlic to make sure that that this was the right space to plant it. It'll be harvestable. It'll be one of the first crops that's harvested. Um, and, and to make sure there's going to be a market for the kind of garlic you're going to grow. And, and so just, but planning around, um, so doing some planning around what you think you're going to be able to sell and something that's relatively simple to grow. That's actually a really good place to start. Cause I think that garlic, it's going to be a huge amount of money this year, right? Mm-hmm. And we need so. money. Always <laughs> need money. <clears throat> so, but, so how is that a failure? Oh, was I supposed to talk about failures? Well, I was talking about that. I was talking about that. The challenge yeah. is, is really just, you know, making uh, these kinds of decisions and figuring mm-hmm. out how you're going to make yeah. money. But, but again, you know, that garlic, there's going to be a lot of money come in from that yeah. early in the year. So, um, and... I would say another challenge is, is obviously just having, you know, getting all the work done. Um, farm labor. labor, labor, this is, I don't know if you know this, but agriculture is labor intensive <laughs> without tractors. And, uh, and so because of that, that's, you know, there has been an extraordinary amount of work has gone into this on these guys backs. Like it's mm-hmm. these guys and a few volunteers. And so the way to solve that problem is to figure out, you know, sort of what's the value that volunteers might be able to bring to the farm that, you know, are they going to get something out of it if they come and volunteer on that farm doing agricultural labor in the hot, hot sun. Mm-hmm. And it turns out people want to do that. Yeah. And, um, but how do we make sure that those people feel valued and know that they're getting something out of it and they're getting a kind of practical experience they're learning about farming so um so the challenges are it's easy to meet them at kind of a small scale in many ways don't underestimate um the power of things like gofundme and these kind of crowdsourcing campaigns because that's how this thing got kickstarted so oh yeah kickstarters (laughs) yeah we did raise funds from that initially especially when we realized that grant funding was off the table it was kind of what other option do we really have other than the benevolence of wonderful people that uh donated despite us not having charity status which is another thing that I certainly didn't know, but cost, you know, upwards of $15,000 and a lot of time to go through and get that status. So certainly something that was not top of priority at, at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, labor is, is something that we also, is part of our mission too, that, you know, we see this as a viable way to, if we can prove this model and, and at a, and a scale, and I mean scale on our current space, yeah. um, to a level that we could, we think, pay for people to be doing this work and that would be something that um we would love to do um for obviously many reasons that positive reasons of employment the basic but um the ability i think at that point you also have the capacity to more um more likely um kind of make the farm work yeah. <laughs> that lack of better way to say that 
Because, um, I mean, you know, thistles suck, and we have a lot of... Uh, <laughs> We have we have water challenges. We have. Um, I was going to bring that up. We have deer that we we are friends with, but also can't be. Yeah, I can't. You know, we, we have barriers yeah. for that uh, fencing, and so all kinds of things that are are certainly you know not only financial challenges but labor challenges. So yeah, one of the things just quickly I was, guess I was going to ask there was some people would look at urban farming or the the movement I guess as a rejection of technology. And I, th- I think it's almost the opposite. I think when you start to dr- drill down into it, I think we're just u- maybe utilizing the technology in the current state. We're using the technology in the wrong ways. I mean, I, I would look at, especially on small scale, I mean, there's huge future of being able to deploy automated technology to manage a small little area. Now, some people are going to argue, okay, well, do we need to do that? But I think because it's on such small scale, I think we really do have the opportunity to be able to utilize technology to our advantage to to combat some of those labor intensive things or different things like that. I think it's, it's definitely going forward, we'll only be able to improve the situation to be able to automate a lot of those processes. And I mean, I think you can look at it as being someone who wants to, you can either be on two schools of thought. You can either be someone who wants to outright reject automation for the sake of that, or you can be, how, how can we utilize what we have to our best advantage and not be deploying it for some ulterior motive, right? So yeah, I think that um, certainly we wouldn't we wouldn't posit Urban Roots as an anti-technology institution by any stretch. And and in fact, I mean, if Jeremy was here, he would immediately jump on this and and talk about the tools that we would love to purchase right now that would be incredibly labor saving. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of those are hand tools, but they're quite advanced, and they're um, it's incredible what they can do. But by uh, without any, you know, it might not look like you know, the AI technology of a vertical farm, for example, but it, it is techno- technology. And, um, you know, I think at even the scale that we have, you know, a, a small utility tractor is something that would be incredibly valuable. And, you know, that's technology. So um, there are, yeah, certainly ways that you can incorporate that without kind of taking away the the technology exists at different scales yeah and one more thing i we're we're using social media we're you know emailing all of our customers and all these kinds of things that wouldn't be possible without it and we're happy to use those sorry yeah no and and having i mean one of the things that small allows you to do is um is have diversity and so for example there is part of this newly diverse re-diversified food economy in london ontario i said i wasn't going to say the word again um (laughs) is um on the move organics and they deliver some of their um produce Mm. using trucks but they also use this you know really in almost improbable cargo bicycle and um and and that kind of you know there you can use all kinds of technologies Mm -hmm. when you have uh when you're operating at a different scale Mm -hmm. you don't have to buy the 500 million dollar tractor i don't think they're that expensive but But um, yeah yeah. and um so you know i think that that it comes back to this notion of diversity and about having a lot of different technologies and also having power to choose the technologies you want to apply to the particular location you're going to be in. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess from an entrepreneurship perspective, do you want to in, in urban farming or growing something, do you want to grow what you're passionate about? Does that help at all? Like, I mean, as far as the things that you're growing, like, do you like, like to consume? 
I'm saying. So as far as picking things, because obviously we say as entrepreneurs, oftentimes, you know, do what you love and, and pick something that you're passionate about. Do you think that that helps in, in the farming as well? Or do you think you kind of need to go after the market stuff to some degree too? So as in like grow the produce that I like to eat yeah, myself. Yeah, sure. Or just, you know, things that you, or something that you think is cool. Like do you pick, mm. as far as picking the things that you grow, yeah. is it to do with, I mean, I'm sure it's a little bit of both, but do you yeah. pick something that you're passionate about or do you pick something that the market needs? Uh, it's a funny, I guess I've never thought of it in that way. Um, we certainly this year have made an effort to try to figure out what people are looking for. Um, and I'll caveat that with, we're also you know, limited in our knowledge and capacity to grow certain things. So yeah. there's things that, you know, last year beets and spring mix grew really, really well. So we're, we're going to grow those again. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a starting point to, in, in that sense. And then we've, we've sent out surveys basically to an, a, you know, about a dozen different restaurants and vendors in the city with a list of things that we plausibly think that we would be able to grow and ask them to tell us, are you interested in these kinds of things? And you know, if nobody checks the box for tomatoes, then perhaps we consider not growing as many or, or any tomatoes. That's not true. People like tomatoes, but um, <laughs> that was a bad example. Uh, so there is, there's an element there of, of the, you know, what are people asking for, for sure. And I, I mean, I guess personally, I, I love growing beets and I'm happy to see cucumbers growing. I, I don't know if I have a, a certain yeah. you know, strong desire one way or the other. And uh, again, Jeremy would love to talk about some of and, the different and experiments. And I, I think the desire run. of this farm in terms of building these partnerships with the, with these other small enterprises in London is, is to feed what they're doing mm. um, and to be a partner in um, helping them, you know, access something that's going to be part of what they specifically are up to. Yeah. Um, and uh, if it's beets, then we got beets, yeah. you know? So, um, and, I, and I think that that's part of the excitement of it is being part of you know feeding into these other restaurants and entrepreneurs that are doing this other kind of interesting stuff so and you can and you can definitely do that so much more because you have those checks and balances because you're local than you can ever do you know without that right i think i think there's something to be said about saying when we were talking again about shipping something halfway across the world those people have no real identity or connection to the area and so they don't really care a whole lot about what they're sending here and also they're sending stuff to everybody and so when you have the ability to connect local, you also have that accountability that if you send a bad product, you're going to hear about it. But not, not only that, you go out and ask people, how better can I help you? Right. And that doesn't happen a lot on big scale because it's just almost impossible to do it. That's right. I yeah. mean, and this is, again, it goes back to consumers are told what they're going to eat mm -hmm. by the production systems that, that we allow to dominate. And, um, and that is what a lot of people are saying. I, we're not going to do that anymore. Right. Yeah. That's, part of what people are rejecting. And it's not really rejection, rejection, <laughs> but um, it is absolutely, you know, unsettling the, the, the dominance and, or hegemony of a particular system. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, so if people want to get a hold of you guys or contact you or, or find Call out Call Huron College. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, uh, yeah, Richie knows how to... All the normal ways. I mean, yeah. we, we do have a website and our website has all of our emails posted. Um, we have a, a Facebook page and an Instagram page that are... Twitter. Are, are, and we just did start a Twitter page as well. So uh, realistically, if you message us through any of those platforms, we, we would get back to you in, in a pretty hopefully prompt way. You, I just had one other question. Do you think that 
So here's a good example because of, of a collective. Uh, you guys wouldn't probably each be able to do uh, your own. Do you think you'd be able to manage your own farms? Like, I mean, I don't know if I'd be able to oh, on my grief. own. I think. Nope. <laughs> no, I am a university professor. Didn't I mention that? No, and no, no, no. However, I think I would be able to probably um, find the ten right people to start it. Mm. That now, after mm-hmm. this experience of being on the board, of course, it'll be all you guys. Anyway, so yeah. So, so yeah, you think somebody starting up, it's better to get a group of people together probably than to try to tackle oh, yes. it on your own. Yeah, and, well, and so yeah. there's been, uh, yes, I do. And the, a couple, um, a couple times it's come out that it's been said, oh, Urban Roots is, you know, the first urban farm in the city and we're absolutely not. There's yeah. been other urban farm projects over the years and um, in a variety of different fashions. But um, I think a lot of the people that have been a part of those would tell you that it was just really hard to, to pursue that roughly on their own or with one or two other people. And um, that's something that I think I would, say makes a lot of sense based on what we've experienced yeah and something else i would do is i if i was going to start one um and my advice to anybody would be find out what else is going on in this kind of you know quiet food sector um you know find out how many of your neighbors have bees find out how many of your neighbors have are trying to keep chickens in their yard right i don't think it's a good idea to do that in the city, but, um, try, find out how many of your neighbors are, are doing, um, maple syrup, right? Um, really try and find out what's going on out there because you're going to find people there are going to be assets and they, they might also want to work in solidarity and partnership. Yeah, it's, no, it's definitely true. I actually keep bees here too. I have an apiary on my property too. Well, I haven't, I, I didn't mention this and I wasn't going to, but, uh, I haven't had processed sugar for almost three years now. Mm. Um, so and I'm, Interesting. Not, I'm not like totally like if, if something slips by, but to my knowledge, I haven't had processed sugar. Did you say 30 years? No, no, three. Three. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good. 30. I'm, I'm three is still, still impressive. pretty impressive. Still impressive. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So yeah. the only sugar that I produce and that I consume <laughs> is honey and maple syrup. Those are the only awesome. processed sugars, I guess, that I would consume. Um, but that's my choice, but I guess yeah. I didn't do it for health reasons. I didn't do it for anything. I b- did it because I believed that in 30 years down the road yeah. that I'd be better off starting today if I didn't. Yeah. Um, and that's my choice. Your pancreas will thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But that's, a, that's also a choice that you have to make. And we discussed this too, that you have to make before you actually are sick, <laughs> right? Like, it, like you don't, you can let sickness be your guide or you can say, I'm going to eat healthier because of that. Right. Um, yeah. So I had a, another question for you guys. It's what, what impact generally would you like to have on the world? That could be as big, big or small as you want. I mean, as far as London goes or, or that, um, what, what would you like to have impact wise? So we actually spent some time doing work on our, and we're still working through this, but on our, our mission and vision statements as an organization. And you're, you're not going to see any grandiose kind of change the world type yeah. language. Um, and part of that is, something we mentioned that I think we want to do our best to consciously um, make a difference in the local community and not because we came in as, you know, hello, Urban Roots is here, get ready for us to save the day, but because we, we came in and said, hey, we're thinking of growing some food, who wants to get on board with this and how do you want to see this happen in this particular neighborhood? And hopefully that turns into something positive. And, and, and I think that on its own is, is kind of enough. Um, 
especially if it leads to, we said, what was the way? Not, not scalable, but movable. Yeah. If this is something that can be moved to another space, another community that can then drive that on their own, I, I think that would be how we would define success in, a lot, in many ways. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I think a lot of people don't really, maybe can't compartmentalize what success means in urban agriculture, but that, that definitely sounds like it, where it's as many times as you can copy it, right? Every time you can copy, copy that, that seems like that would be success to me. I'd really like to see sales cover mm-hmm. um, the the subsidized food that can be just distributed to people that that have barriers to getting access to that mm-hmm. food. Uh, I mean that, and and I think we're you know again it's this garlic sales that are going to do this, right? <laughs> I, I think that they were on track to to develop that model, and I think that is going to be awesome when that happens. Yeah, we're still proving that model. We say the model and in hopes that it is sustainable and yet to be fully tested, but that would be the, the, the idea. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks. Thanks so much guys for, uh, for taking the time out. I really appreciate it. I could probably go on and on for hours because I like this as an interest. Um, and I think that there's a lot of people that we'll start keeping bees and then we can do one on bees. How's yeah, that? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I know we have bees. I didn't want to mention to you. We have bees. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, so that's great. Uh, you know, small scale farming type of person, but I think the educational process and having people collaborate is definitely really important. So thanks so much for, uh, for joining me today. And thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate great. it. Thanks, right. Lee. Great. Thanks.